Right. So, what I want to, uh, to share with you is really reminding you of why we do it all. What really it's all about. I mean, yes, it's to be a little more in touch, to be a little kinder, and all the rest of it. But this is one of numerous practices that Buddha taught, all in service of awakening. So I want to remind us about what awakening is, lest we get caught up in the smallness of our practice and forget, really, the matrix of what it's all about. Start with a story. True story in the news a year or so ago in the London underground, known there as the tubes. A bunch of people on a platform, train due to arrive momentarily. And a man fell into, onto the tracks. I believe it was because he was having a seizure. I can't remember for sure. But there he was, lying there, with a train due to arrive momentarily. And so another man, one of the many people standing nearby, jumped on top of him and with his own weight held him down below train access. And the train came. And they were both fine. And the train left, and he got up. And the man who was the fallen one was helped up, and it was a happy ending. Incredible. Extra incredible was the fact that his two children were there, the one who jumped. And he just jumped. And extra incredible is the fact that after this all happened and all, everybody crowded around and then reporters came and, and he was being interviewed for the publications. And what was it like and how did you feel, you know, those questions. And his answers were, well, of course. Like, it was obvious. Never gave it a second moment's thought. That is rare. And we know it's, it's, a, it's awesome to us. It's inspiring to us to think that humans can, without hesitation, with their own children there, just act appropriately, you could call that, kindly, wisely, brilliantly. And I think why it inspires us, of course, so much is because on the whole, many of us would dicker around on the edge of the platform and not be able to do that. Because we're constrained on the whole by fear, doubt, wondering, many, many colliding thoughts. And he seemed to not be so constrained in that moment. And it's this hesitancy, this struggling, this wondering, this bargaining that we're doing all the time, that's constraining us all the time, that's keeping us stuck, really unfree. It's reasonable. It's fair enough. It's okay that we do this because, as I said in my first talk, we must remember how we are wired and where we've come from and that we have deep, deep, deep in our cells nerviness and guardedness and we have in our the true story of who we are and what it's like here we are extremely vulnerable. Mm -hmm. 
We're sensitive and we're sentenced to death and no one knows when. That's an extraordinarily vulnerable predicament that we live in. And being wired for caution, of course, we hang back and we wonder and worry and are all the time trying to be okay given this deep insecurity of how it is to be who we are, sensitive and vulnerable and insecure and all that. So what we do because of this sensitivity and this unpredictability is we um, spend pretty well every waking moment or a huge, huge percentage of our waking moments taking care of everything, rearranging, making sure we're okay, it's okay, planning, organizing, figuring out, fixing. We're busy, busy all day long. And when we don't have that busyness to do out there, in a peculiar situation like this, we do it on the inside. (laughs) And we are describing and planning and explaining and justifying and blaming and wishing and imagining endlessly to make things be apparently okay. Aren't we? It's pretty hard to not do that. When we give ourselves another thing to do, like say you love yourself, seems pretty simple. It's not so simple. It takes a lot of effort, lots of repetition. When we say, watch your breath, just be here, be in your body, nothing to worry about, the food's going to show up pretty well on time, it'll be lovely. It's not, it's so hard to do this. What's extraordinary, and you will be seeing this and have seen this or will see this if you keep doing this practice, it's more and more clear, is when you really pay attention to all of that inner dialogue and commentary and all the rest of it, you begin to see that very little of it is actual reality. And a huge majority of it is you're making it up. You're making up the story of who you are and why you did this and why you did that and how you could do this and why they probably did that and who they probably were. And It's actually, it's amazing script writing we're doing all the time. <laughs> all the time. And you just see, like I'm making my life up moment by moment. What really is my life? If I wasn't doing all that, would there be anybody there? Would there be a life unfolding? Like, is it, how much of it is my creation? How much of it is? It's very peculiar when you start questioning it. And the thing about meditation is we start questioning it. We don't question it, usually. It just is how it goes. We don't even notice we're doing it. Once we start noticing it and being interested in it, we start questioning, what's this all about? It's based from that insecurity. So if we can explain it and justify it and predict it and organize it, then there's something at least somewhat meaningful or solid in this what really is a not very solid reality that we're in. So that's how we go about it. And what we're doing is in this making up, we're actually, there is, there is a certain amount of reality. I did you know, have that experience whatever I've now made that into, there was a meeting and a conversation or there was a sensation or there was a sound of a truck or whatever. 
There is, there is a certain amount of reality, but we add on top of it, right? We just inflate and contribute an, an enormous extra amount on top of the simplicity of what happens. And I know you know this, but I want you to really explore this as we do this together, because I want, I want us to get into how it feels to do this. The awakening that the Buddha is talking about, enlightenment, freedom, liberation, these amazing words, are not pointing to or attempting to describe some fantastic... I started my other talk like this, didn't I? Wow, dramatic experience. What they're talking to is the absence of all that extra. And what's left is quiet. And what's left is the absence of the feeling that is accompanied by all that busy futzing that we do, fussing. So that's where we can send our explorations, I suppose, into the feeling of what it feels like to do all that, and then notice the times when we aren't doing all that. So this makes the experience an experience instead of theory, some great words, but actually knowable, accessible, livable. Thomas Merton a door opens in the center of our being and we seem to fall through it into immense depths which although they are infinite are all accessible to us. All eternity seems to have become ours in this one placid and breathless contact. And the two words that I'm highlighting in this are we seem to fall through it and this one placid moment it's peaceful. It's not a doing, stepping through, rising through, rushing through, climbing through, clambering desperately, organizing ourselves through. It's the opposite. Chogam Trumpa used to say, in awakening or enlightenment is an accident. Meditation makes us accident prone. <laughs> But we don't do accidents. We're the recipient of accidents. We are the victims, in a way, of accidents. It's more passive. But our behavior to protect and somehow give ourselves meaning and security and all of these things are, is active behavior. So what we learn as we meditate, actually, is we're learning to stop the doing we initially give ourselves something else to do because we're such doers and that's such our mode of behavior that if we give ourselves an alternative doing to do, it's easier to do than say, do nothing. I don't know if any of you read that very popular novel that was out last year, it was called um, Eat, Pray, Love. And in the, pra in the pray part, when she's in, in the ashram in India, um, she's spending four months and four months and four months, a year 
doing these three separate activities to recover from a broken heart. When she's in the praying section, she's in India in an ashram and uh, talking about meditation, one of her quotes is, it's much easier, if you have a monkey, to, to um, instead of, it's much easier to get the monkey to put a bean in a jar than to say, sit there and do nothing. And we're like the monkey, and so we give ourselves these things to do, put beans in jars, to help train the mind to stop doing all the other proliferations of things that it, it thinks will make everything okay. But it isn't about beans in jars. It's about training the mind to stop its habitual busyness. So we have to, it's like dog obedience training. It isn't that you really want the dog to sit every five seconds or walk, you know, it's because you want the dog to do what you want it to do when it needs to do it because traffic's coming or you've reached the end of the street. It's not about the breath, for instance. It's not about knowing that you're breathing in and breathing out or knowing that you're breathing in long and breathing out long and knowing that the breath has ended. Who cares? It's about the mind being able to do that. It's even not about saying, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be calm, may I be free. It's about having a mind that can be loving instead of anxious, be sensitive instead of automatically, unconsciously critical. So this freedom, this awakening, it's awakening, it's, I like the word freedom because it's freedom from, freedom from being bound up, freedom from being stuck, freedom from being caught, imprisoned, many, many different phrases. And all of the, the things which make up the prison that catch us, that trap us, are all of these desperate things that we, in our limited awareness, do to try and help us be okay. Of course. The Buddha called them thieves. If you're not wary, then thieves will rush into your psyche and take away all your good sense and wisdom. And they're always there, waiting. And another name for the thieves is Mara, as we've heard. Mara and all these arrows and weapons, trying to get into the chinks of our awareness to possess us. Eckhart Tolle, you know, the uh, man who lives right near where I live, just bought a house on my island, my island. (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll erase that little piece from the tape. Um, he says, in in his description of negative states, he talks about being possessed by them, just like as if you're possessed by an evil spirit. Because once it's in there, it's like you're not there. You're wanting to be who you are isn't there, and what's there is fear or anger or irritation or whatever it may be, self-hatred, which you didn't invite to be there, and you don't really want to be there, but it's now taken over and it's running the show. So it's like a thief. We aren't the way we'd like to be when these things take up residence, possess us. So we aren't therefore free because someone else has invaded us and some other energy is, is at the driver's seat and we're being carried along in a way that isn't usually how we'd like. And what we're always being encouraged to do And what we learn as we do this 
training of the mind is at least what we're attempting to do is to let go of this endlessly busy doing. Now I'll tell you a couple of midwifery stories about letting go. A huge, huge proportion of the women who are my clients in labor and almost all the clients that I took when I was a midwife were first-time mothers. They're a lot more confident and it's a lot easier the second time around as a general rule, but in the first time it's this very scary mystery journey they're about to go on and they know it will include pain. And so they hire the midwife. This was the days before it was legal in British Columbia, so they'd pay money and everything to hire us because they really wanted reassurance. So first time in labor, usually quite a number of hours of this. So they would be in touch and call Paige when it was beginning, and then I would arrive sooner or later. And um, again and again and again and again and again, within about five minutes of arriving, the gears would change, and her labor would just really, really pick up. She would hold a sense of control and um, togetherness, basically oppressing the, the hormones that run through the system because of the anxiety of not knowing what was going to happen until somebody was there, the midwife, who was the familiar one, who was the guide. It's like you're going off on a journey and you've got now the guide is here to show you where you're going to go. And then they would relax. They would relax, and then when, when, when you're in labor and you relax, this hormone, which is the hormone that makes all the contractions and the whole energy happen, is now released into the system. It is oppressed by anxiety. And as soon as there's a reducing of the anxiety, typically arrival of the midwife, the labor just changed gear like crazy. It's almost like she says, okay, you're here, you're here, yes, everybody here? Okay, right, then now I can go. It would just be like that. <laughs> And a number of times, a few times, I remember one woman, Sophie. I have a couple of things to say about Sophie. Sophie had planned to have her baby at home. It was a beautiful sunny day, lovely garden. There was just outside in the garden. It was all very lovely. Everything was great. No concerns about anything at all. Laboring away, doing fine, time's passing. But it isn't actually working. Like The hours are passing, the activity is happening, but she's not opening up inside as she should be. So after a number of hours of this, we have to decide this is just not a good thing. It's got to be effective or else it's exhausting and unproductive and could get dangerous. So we all agreed after a certain time that she needed to transfer into the hospital. She was okay with that decision. She came to terms with it. We went into the hospital. As soon as we got into the hospital, she was completely dilated. She had planned in her theoretical head to have her baby at home, but actually she wasn't comfortable enough for whatever the reasons, and she actually wanted to be in the hospital. She didn't know this, but her body knew it, because as soon as she was there, she was relaxed enough to have died. Even in the car, she was doing what she couldn't do in this lovely garden somewhere at home. She could let go and relax. It's, it's one of the most obvious experiences we go through as humans that reveals letting go or not letting go. That's not all that happens in labor because there's the mechanics of it, there's other issues around health and so on, but there is a big component of resistance and tension and it not working in face of the, the motor of the thing going that actually doesn't result in the woman opening up if she can't let go. Another story about Sophie, which was very, very delightful. We were in the hospital, she's fully dilated, she's now pushing her baby, which takes about an hour or something. 
she was a small woman and very pretty and from Paris. And um, no one looks very pretty when they're in the middle of pushing a baby out because it's a huge exertion. Your face goes red and gets all scrunched up. And uh, most often women are sitting, legs splayed, not looking pretty. <laughs> and um, the physician who now was involved because we moved into the hospital was there right in front of her, right in front of her. And uh, at one moment in between one push and the next, when things calmed down, he said to her, Sophie, you look so beautiful. It was so spontaneous. And she just said, thank you. It was so, she just was so empowered, so relaxed. So it was just such a meta thing to say. <laughs> you could feel her just lose all resistance to being in the hospital. It was very generous because she actually, in part of her, didn't want to be in the hospital setting, and so it was a gift. A couple of other midwifery stories about letting go. Um, once I had a math professor client, and um, she could not let go of her mental trying to do it the right way. She spent nearly three days trying to figure it out. And it wasn't until she was completely physically exhausted and then her mind relaxed and then her body was fine and did great. <laughs> she had a baby and all was well. But she was very unable to allow the letting go that it takes, which for those of you who've never done that, it's somewhat like yoga. I don't know if there are, you know, there may be people who've neither had a baby nor done any yoga, but probably the majority of you have done one or the other. <laughs> And when you're doing a yoga stretch, you're holding a stretch that's not a strengthening standing pose, but that includes or is a more passive. You don't make the muscle stretch. You take the muscle to where it is being stretched, and you relax there, and you let go of the struggle. If you go too far and push too hard, it's just painful and you're fighting yourself. You know that. But when you don't go quite that far, but you just rest at the edge and lean, the muscles let go and the body will open more. It's the same principle in labor and it's the same principle in uh, liberation. You don't let go. You notice where you're holding and you rest there. And because it's an accident, sooner or later, depending on the conditions which are way beyond you, a letting go happens. And what lets go is this busy little ego that's trying to take care of itself and do all the things it does, and it relaxes. One final little labor extra is for, for women, in my experience, who under the age of about 20, they let go before they even tightened up. And they just look, spit the babies out. We used to call them date pits. <laughs> because they, weren't, they hadn't developed a lot of anxiety and knowledge and expectation. And, you know, they just were like, they just carry on. We had to make sure we got there really early for those young ones. When we're in a, a state of um, our normal state, which is not really okay, we aren't really trusting the unfolding of life. We think we can probably make it a slightly better or get rid of something a little bit or when something is just over, we're over some other difficulty and then it'll be better. 
We're always in this state. We get to have to know this about ourselves. There is a sense of um, one of the one of the words to describe it. There's many aspects of it, but one of the words is doubt. It was one that I was working with most recently on my retreat, which I know I mentioned in my last talk a little bit. We we doubt that it's okay, just as it is. It's not quite okay. Something just something needs to be something. When we're in that state of it's not quite okay, doubt, or needing, or wanting, or irritated, or whatever, we, the adding that we're doing is, um, there is if there's this inner experience of, I have to do something about it. So when we're looking at our experience, where in whatever it is that's happening, there's this little feeling that something has to be done about it. You know what I'm saying? We need to really get familiar with this. When we're in a state of liberation, which is a, an experience that's a moment of not doing that, there isn't any need to do anything about anything. It's the easiest way and the clearest way to actually point to this experience. It's an ex- so there are times in our lives that we all have throughout a day where we have this sense of there's nothing that needs to be done now. And we know that that feeling is it's a happy feeling, it's a peaceful feeling, it's a calm feeling, it's a friendly feeling, it's a relaxed feeling, and probably the word that I like the most to apply to that is relief. And we know deeply inside ourselves that that is what we really want. And so, because we don't know how to have these moments of letting go, because it's so not our habit, we look to get the things that we think we need to make ourselves feel better. What really we're looking for is relief. What we really want is relief from having to do anything about anything. So if I have another meal, then I'll be full and I'll have that feeling of satisfaction and I'll be comfortable for a while. And then something else will need to be attended to. Or if I consume the next thing or I find the right person or... It's not the person we're looking for that's the right person. It's not the right food. It's not the right anything, house, job. It's the feeling that's peaceful, that's satisfied, that we want. We just think it's in the object and getting the object. It's not. It's behind the object. It's that feeling. So as we see, the way we have to go through this is to see this constant wanting, need. The more we can see it, the more likely we will be to not keep doing it. We can't just say, I'm going to not do it. I saw anxiety and I let it go. Almost always when somebody says, you know, and then, you know, I'm, I'm trying to let it go, they're actually doing this with their body and they're trying to say, I'm trying to get rid of it. That's not the surrender that freedom is. That's just more of the same controlling. It's much more a not doing. It's much more an allowing. You know this. This is quite a well-known quote. I don't know if I'll read it all, but I'll read a little bit. It's, called, it's by Rumi. 
He lived in 1207 till 1273. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. <laughs> Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing. Invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Welcome difficulty. Learn the alchemy true human beings know. The moment you accept what troubles you've been given, the door opens. And you fall through. <laughs> There's another little poem by a Tibetan woman from the 14th century called Lull Death, and it's simply, I searched far and wide. But the day that the truth found me, I was at home. I did all of that work, doing, but I didn't find the truth. <laughs> I just gave up, relaxed, allowed, and it came and found me. I got out of the way of doing. John O'Donohue is an Irishman who writes beautifully, as some of the Irish can. I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. Rivers don't do it. So passive. So all this language is about the, the letting go that is what's required for there to be freedom. That's why that word abiding, Sylvia was talking about this morning, it's restful. To abide is to be at home, your abode. To What you do at home and why do we like having a home? Because we can relax in it. We can stop the doing. We go out there and do all the doing, then we come home when we can rest. So, as I said, my favorite word for all of this is the description of the feeling of relief. It's such a relief to not have to do something. This is why we go on holiday to the hot beaches. This is why we, we do all the things we do, so we can experience this relief. So a couple of other lists of the things, just I'm going to list a few of the things that we can be caught by and therefore become freed from. Doubt, as I've mentioned. The opposite of doubt would be, I like the word trust, that things are okay as they are, rather than doubt that maybe they're not. Maybe I've got to do something about something. All of this fussing and struggling and worrying and busyness. Freedom from being possessed, like I said, by these negative states that come and take us over, to be free of that. To be free from inappropriate responses to things, reactivity. Basically, to be free from greed, hatred, and delusion. This is what the Buddha is saying. 
to be freed from this small me and its fearful state that it's got to do something about life. To be able to expand into the bigger reality of it is, what it is here. And so a lot of times we talk about being in a cage or being imprisoned. Here's a lovely little poem, another Rumi poem. We're on a, we're on a Persian kick, aren't we, this retreat? Great lions can find peace in a cage, but we should only do that as a last resort. So those bars I see that restrain your wings, I guess you don't mind if I pry them open. And there's another poem, which is my probably favorite poem, has been for quite some time. It's a Hafiz poem. And it says... um, The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. All those things that are possessing us and running us and invading us and driving us and that have been lurking down in the unconscious for our whole lives sometimes. Beautiful and rowdy. So the practices, this mind training practice, is seeing the prisoners and letting them out. And it's so counter to the way of the world, which is to avoid and to fix and to blame and to bury or get rid of or something. Something, something, do something. This is just to let them be. The extraordinary thing is that the prison that we're in has only got three walls. And the back wall doesn't exist. And that we've sort of made up this fantasy of being stuck inside this ego and having all these things to do, and it actually isn't really true. It's a complete game. But we just don't know how to turn around and walk out the back door, so we're like hanging onto the bars and bargaining with everything and trying. It's, it's the bizarrest thing. And so all the teachings are trying to say, turn around. Like, go the other way. Go right into that fear. Go into those prisons that you've got down there and here are the keys and allow it, allow it, allow it. Extraordinary. I'm coming to matter eventually, I promise. <laughs> so now I want to remind you of how this feeling of relief tastes for you in whatever moments you can imagine or remember, not imagine, remember where there's that feeling of letting go of the one that has to do something and the having to do something, that compulsion. And there's a moment of, oh, I'm going to use as an illustration an example of an exchange that I had with one of you um, in a meeting, one of our meetings here. And uh, it was such a clear example of this feeling. It was so fun for both of us. So the yogi said, um, she said, I have, I have a question. I have a question. It was the end of our, our time together. So I have a question. My question is, um, I might not get the words perfectly right. Please forgive me. Um, what, how can I 
prevent my mind in my normal day-to-day practice how can I prevent my mind from just taking me off and I said you can't and she burst out laughing and her head went back and she said of course and we both laughed because it went from the doing to the oh yes there's there's no back to my prison here and the delight of it and then her hand went onto her heart right away and it was just like and then she said what a relief (laughs) you know what I'm talking about everybody knows what I'm talking about don't you it's as simple and accessible as this in a moment that we realize oh I don't have to do this it just is how it is my mind will go off it's such a relief the feeling of freedom however minute or however huge is exactly the same feeling this is the feeling this is what the Buddha called the pure heart's release and he said this feeling that pure heart's release is every single thing I've ever taught for the 45 years that he taught that's what I'm teaching that's it it feels delightful it feels exciting in a way it feels like there's three aspects to it I think I would describe this feeling of liberation when we have a moment like this however huge however what we think is little it feels like um, exciting or delightful this pleasure it feels completely right and it's and we go of course I know this. It's so yes. It's never like, oh my goodness, I never would have thought that. And it feels like a relief. So, now we get to metta. Metta helps it. (laughs) Metta allows that feeling way more readily to arise. Metta allows us to not need to keep going with this worrying anything like so much because, as it says in the sutta, the heart is gladdened. When the heart is gladdened, it's calm. It's just like an upset child. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, you'll be all right. It's going to pass, you're fine, I love you. And it just calms down. And when it can calm down, this inner sense of ourselves, it can relax and it can just let go. It's so helpful. It's like engine lube or hair conditioner or <laughs> oil on the water. or it's, it's such a facilitation of the ability to do that because the reason we do all the struggling that we do is because we're afraid. You know, we're just afraid. Life's so unpredictable. We think we've got to do something. And this says it's okay as it is. And in a moment of softening of the heart, the next moment there'll be that releasing. It just goes like that. I had a lovely retreat this last fall at Gaia House. Just not very long ago, I came out of the retreat just the second week of December. Just a month ago, I've been back. And I kept seeing over and over some lovely something would happen. My heart would become so gladdened. And then I'd have such a a feeling of open letting go. It just was like clockwork. It happened again and again. One day, did I tell you this about the cobwebs? I did. I told you about the cobwebs? No? 
was another talk. I was talking to some other people at the last retreat. I was walking in the afternoon, early December, uh, four o'clock in the afternoon or so. The sun was setting, the full moon was rising through the green, curvaceous hills and fields of Devon. Cows, just a field, grass, green grass, shortish grass eaten by the cows. I'm walking. I came up over the rise of the hill to a height of the land, and there was the sun, and then the land rolls down, and there's distant views and hills in the distance, all very picturesque. But as I came to this certain angle of the height of the land with the sun setting right over here, the whole, this whole hill of green grass was one shining sea of the sun shining, glinting on gazillions of cobwebs. And as I looked at them, it was just like astounding. I realized that it was only shining on the ones that were horizontal to itself. And there were zillions of other ones all in all the other angles because cobwebs, they don't just go back and forth, right, in one direction. And, and I just thought, the whole, this whole field is swathed in cobwebs and the sun is just shining on them. It was just like the moon on the sea, you know, on the still sea. It was unbelievably gorgeous. There's the moon rising and white owl flapping quietly by. And, oh, I was completely in ecstasy. I walked on back to Gaia House, which was just nearby, and... Um, you know, I went down, had a cup of tea, which I like at four o'clock, and sat down, was totally content. And my mind just went so released. And it was clearly because there was no struggle needed. Again and again, you can see this happening in yourselves. It doesn't even have to be beautiful, blissful sunsets on cobwebs. It could be just something touching. And it doesn't have to be touching in a, in a positive way, but just being, oh, just feeling the heart. Will, it, it just sweetens our attention and allows us to open. As I'm going to re-quote the quote that Donald gave the other night from Thomas Merton, our deep qualities are like wild animals which only come out when they feel safe, but are always there. It's that safety that comes with the heart feeling soft and sweet. Our deep wisdom, our clarity, our ability to allow things is what can happen when we feel good. In gladness and in safety, says the Metta Sutta. So we practice looking into what we've always avoided and staying looking. And we can't stay if we aren't calm. And we're agitated and jumpy and nervy, right? So we have to be calm. So that's why we need a warmth of heart to be able to relax, and then we can stay, and then we can see more and more. And we see things like even our difficult people have their vulnerabilities and you know, have their reasons for being. Even if we don't know what they are, we know that they're there. We don't see this if we don't calm down and stay. We see what, as Hafiz says, that we're all trudging along with as much courage and dignity and style as we possibly can. I have to make a mention of Upeka because of 
not because of, but when Donald did mention the other day how he and I have such a, a we so enjoy this whole topic as a topic, but it's because we both so love this feeling of ease that goes with upeka, equanimity, the fourth of the Brahma-viharas. It's the culmination of all of this practice, all of the doing and all of the phrases and all of the learning and all of the expanding. It, this is where it goes. It goes to this state of open ease, quiet, calm, relief. Upeka, the experience, the experience of a state of equanimity is relief. It's cool, no need to do anything. Deep equanimity is the most restful, still, nourishing state where there is the absence of that. It's free feeling. It's relief feeling. It isn't, it's lovely. It isn't like, yay, far out, exciting, you know. But it's so, such a relief. The absence of the burning. There's that the, the whole sutta that the Buddha describes. You're burning, everything's burning. Burning with agitation, burning with desire, burning with anger. Everything's burning or everything's on fire. This leads us to the cooling of the extinguishing of all the fire. It's, it's such a healing. It's such a relief. Hmm. So, do less. Don't do more. The danger, in a way, the, the, the pitfalls of um, techniques of practice are that we take them up as yet one more project. And I'm now going to get good at this, and I'm going to get something out of that. And we just make more doing and more busyness and more identification and then more judgment. And, oh, no, I've been doing it, and now I'm not doing it. I don't know how to do it. I've forgotten what I'm supposed to be doing. That's not at all what we're trying to do. They're simply tools. Relax about this. All of these teachings, that are, the suggestions we give, we use the word skillful means. They're simply signposts. They can be helpful at different times for different people. But what helpful means is help you to feel this feeling of ease, this feeling of letting go. Not helpful to get good, get marks, overcome even vanquish self-improvement projects. That's more of the same old agitation, actually. So be wary that you aren't trying to accumulate skills here. And in, in a way, we say, these are skills, we're offering you tools, and so we're trying to give you things so that you can become more skillful. So in one way, you do become more skillful. The skills that you gain, though, is in getting out of the way. So when there's anger, there can be some forgiveness. And then relaxation happens, and there's no one blaming anyone for anything. There just a, is a story that has a reason. So make sure the tools lead to putting the tools down rather than you know, feeling that you've got to hold 10 tools all at once. Get exhausted. I'm a gardener. And um, we have gardening tools, you know. We we cultivate and we prune and we spray and we do things with tools, but just a bit. And then after we've done what we think we can to be helpful, we then put the tools down and then we stand back and then it does it. 
We don't go like, come along, rose bush, and up you come. <laughs> open, you come open. <laughs> Let's see you, rose, come along. The rose does that. The bush does that. The dharma does that. The letting go happens. It's an accident. All we can do with some of these tools is to befriend ourselves, keep looking. Really all we can do is keep looking. Keep looking, keep on all the time looking with curiosity to see what really is there without flinching, with a lot of gentle kindness. That's it. Keep looking with kindness. Vipassana and metta. That's all you can do. Whatever happens, whatever reveals itself, whatever letting go happens, it all does it. That's not your job. You can't let go. All you can do is actually let be. Because it's already there. You may as well let it be there, because it's there. No more adding. Read a couple of other people's beautiful words. Mm. Rainier Maria Rilke. We have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, there are terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them, and only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us that we must always trust in the difficult. Then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races, the myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses? Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. So you must not be frightened if a sadness rises before you, larger than any you've ever seen, if an anxiety like light and cloud shadows moves over your hands and everything that you do. You must realize that something has happened to you. Life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in its hands and will not let you fall. Why do you want to shut out of your life any uneasiness, any miseries or any depressions? For after all, you do not know what work these conditions are doing inside you. And then two, I'll finish with these two little, one is a a section of and one is a poem of Mary Oliver's. And this is about all that you can do. We must do all that we can do, and it's small. This is the last part of a poem, and it says, it's about dying. When it's over, meaning when life is over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. 
I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. And then this is another of her poems. It's called Mockingbirds. This morning, two mockingbirds in the green field were spinning and tossing the white ribbons of their songs into the air. I had nothing better to do than listen. I mean this seriously. In Greece a long time ago, an old couple opened their door to two strangers who were, it soon appeared, not men at all, but gods. It's my favorite story, how the old couple had almost nothing to give but their willingness to be attentive. But for this alone, the gods loved them and blessed them. When they rose out of their mortal bodies like a million particles of water from a fountain, the light swept into all the corners of the cottage, and the old couple, shaken with understanding, bowed down. But still they asked for nothing but the difficult life which they had already. And the gods smiled as they vanished, clapping their great wings. Wherever it was I was supposed to be this morning, whatever it was I said I would be doing, I was standing at the edge of the field. I was hurrying through my own soul, opening its dark doors. I was leaning out. I was listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.